Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for joining us here at BenaiShalom.tv. My name is Ephraim Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries. From our family to yours, thank you for inviting us into your home each and every week with this broadcast where we set apart the Sabbath with the Kiddush, we worship the Lord together, and we hear the teaching of the Torah from the Word of the Lord. We thank you for being a part of this ministry in all the different ways. Um, we encourage you, if, if you are blessed by this broadcast, we encourage you that you uh, would, if the, your heart would be stirred, to make a donation to help support and sustain this ministry. You also can um, participate with this ministry in other ways as well. You can go to messianicmarketplace.org and see the whole host of new products that we have there on the website and to minister to you in various ways. And so we thank you for being a part of this ministry. A couple of announcements that we have going on. It is uh, March 22nd. We celebrated Purim this week, and so we hope you had a wonderful and festive time uh, with the festival. And we also have other events that we are looking forward to for this year. We have a Shavuot conference that will be in Dallas, Texas. Uh, that's coming up June 7 through 9. If you go to ShavuotEvent.com, you can register your family there and join with us for the Feast of Weeks, which is one of the commanded appointed times. We also have our Feast of Tabernacle celebration that takes place in Chandler, Oklahoma, that's coming up in October. You can register your family at tabernaclesevent.com, and we hope that you register for that. Our RV sites for that event fill up very quickly, so we hope that you would get signed up and join with us for that appointed time as well. We love to meet the brethren that we minister to across the globe that this broadcast reaches. We love to see you guys in person at these events. And so uh, the Lord just continues to bless us and sustain us um, to minister to you wherever you might be. So once again, thank you for joining us here with this broadcast. And now let us set apart the Sabbath with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family and welcome to our home. Please join us as we welcome in the Sabbath. Baruch Hashem, Adonai, Elohim, Malek, Hawalom, Asher, Kedesh, Anu, Vemetzotah. 
Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now, <coughs> bless you. Now the blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Pri HaGafen Amen Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. And now the Chamotzi, blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz, we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz, amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Now, husbands, let's bless our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the wonderful wives that you have given to us. We thank you for giving us wives of Proverbs, Lord. Father, I pray that you would pour out a special blessing upon my wife this Sabbath day. I pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her in all the things that she does here in our household. As she takes care of the children, as she teaches them and educates them, as she takes care of our home, I pray, Lord, that she knows how valuable she is and how her worth is far above jewels. I thank you for the wonderful blessing that she is to me, to our children, to our household, and I pray you pour out a special blessing upon her on this Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord, in Yeshua's name. Amen. And now we will bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May God lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. Amen. Now we bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And grant you peace, and may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. 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 Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Micha Mocha Baelima Donai Micha Mocha Nedahar Bachodesh Nohora Techilot Who is love?
like you, O Lord, among the gods. Who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord, who is like you. Amen. Now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech ha'olam, asher natan lanu et derech ha'yeshua b'mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et ha'shabat, la'asot et ha'shabat l'adrotam barit olam, b'nei avayom b'nei Yisrael ot'hit le'olam, k'sheshet yamim asadonai et ha'shamayim v'et ha'aretz v'yom ha'shavi shavat v'yinafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem, Kivod Mahuto, Leolam Vayed, Yeshua Hamashiach, Hu Adonai. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai Ochecha b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha, uv'chol meodecha, v'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher nechim e'zavcha ha'yom alevavcha, v'shinantam l'avenecha, v'depardabam b'shivtecha, b'yetecha, uv'lechtecha, v'derech u'shakpika, uv'kumika, u'kershatam la'ota yadecha, v'heyu la'totafot b'inenecha, u'chetatam ha'mozuzo b'techa uv'sharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Do I have a doubt that kept my forefathers out? 
Can I make it past Will my heart be sure when I stand at the door? Will I need my eyes to see? Oh, why don't I, how I think, have mercy on me, don't let me stumble Let me have no doubt That will keep me out Of the promise you have for me Sometimes I'm sure that you're at the door Then doubt comes over me When the shofar sounds will I step out Will I need my ears to be Will I need my ears to believe? Oh, why don't I, how I plead? Have mercy on me. Don't let me stumble or fall. Let me have no Will keep me out of the promise you have for me. Oh, y'all touch my eyes that I may cry. Let my tears fall at your feet Oh, y'all break my heart So I will start To trust you and be To trust you and believe Oh, I don't know Let me have no doubt that will keep me out of the promise you have for me, of the promise you have for
Oh, how beautiful the trees look below the mountainside with the beautiful blue sky and the fluffy white clouds floating above the mountain. Yeah, I shown the path through the woods of sparkling waters are also Yah has shown the path through the woods of sparkling waters are also beautiful. Yeshua, you made me. I can see and I can speak. I can breathe and I can smell of your creation. How lovely your creation is. You took care of me. When I was small, when I was sick, now I know that I am healed, and no one can tell me different. Yah has shown you the path through the woods, the sparkling waters are oh so beautiful. Yah has shown you the path. The words of sparkling waters are oh so beautiful. Oh, yeah, I ask that you help me heal the broken heart. For the time that I was given, I'm as happy as ever. But I know that I have my time has come, and I will not be afraid. Yah has shown you the path through the woods of sparkling waters are oh so beautiful. Yah has shown you the path through the woods of sparkling waters are oh so beautiful. to the book of Leviticus, to chapter 6. Hold your finger at verse 8, where our Torah portion will begin for this week. And as you open the scripture, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atarunai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher b'chabanu mekol hamim Venatan lanu et torato Baruch atarunai nonten ha-torah amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. 
Our Torah portion this week is entitled Zav, which comes from Leviticus chapter 6 at verse 9, where it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. That Hebrew word command is Zav, which is the root word of Savah, which means to give a charge or to give a command to someone. We've actually had another Torah portion that is very similar to this entitled. It was called Tetzaveh, which came uh, which happened back in Exodus. That was a commandment, Tetzaveh back in that Torah portion, was the commandment for the children of Israel to bring oil of pressed olives for the continual burning of the menorah in the sanctuary. It was a command. It was a charge. It was the, the language and the verbiage of the Lord speaking to Moses here is a little bit different than in other parts of Scripture. In other parts of Scripture, in, even including in this Torah portion, the Lord speaks to Moses and says, tell Aaron and his sons and his sons, speak to them and give them this instruction. Give them this commandment. This language right here at the beginning of our Torah portion command Aaron and his sons. It's a, it's a, a more firm, strong, this is not a suggestion. Anybody that's ever been in the military before knows that when a commanding officer is giving you an order, it's not a suggestion for you to do. It is a command. It is to stir in your hearts and you are to do it. You are to drop what you are doing. And this is something that is very important for you to do. Now, we don't live in a monarchy. However, it's the same way that in ancient kingdoms, if a king gave a command or a decree, this was an order that was to be followed. We need to pay very close attention to what is being commanded here. And this uh, here in Leviticus is talking about the burnt offering. This was the offering that was to be made before the Lord upon the altar each and every day, twice a day, in the morning and in the evening. A lamb that is to be offered to the Lord and burned up completely and given to the Lord. It was to be a continual offering. Just like I said, the commandment before, when it said command the children of Israel, bring the oil, that was also a continual fire that was to be upon the menorah. God is very specific about these commands for things that we are to be steadfast in, that we are to do on a continual basis, on a regular basis. This is almost a, a teachable moment that I believe the Lord is trying to teach us something. This idea, this idea of being steadfast happens to be one of the fruits of the Spirit, is to be constantly be working on the thing that the Lord has laid upon your heart. How many people do you know that always have great ideas and things that they want to do and they, they want to start new tasks and new jobs, but they never remain steadfast to do it? They don't put in the work and the time day in and day out to see the fruits of their labor become a success. That is something that the Lord is trying to teach us, and every person in any walk of life who's ever tried to coach somebody in how they are to carry themselves or the things that they are to do, we teach people and we teach children, you've got to be steadfast. You've got to do it continually. You've got to set a routine. You've got to wake up at the same time every day. You've got to take care of yourself and, 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 and do these things on a regular basis if you wish to become a successful person. We understand this in the realm of life coaching and motivational speaking, 
But I believe the Lord himself, he understands this as well as to what we, if we are to be his people, if we are to worship him, believe in him, and follow him, he wants us to be steadfast in the service of him. He wants things to be constant and steady, such as light on the menorah, such as this burnt offering that is put upon the altar. He wants us to constantly be working and serving him in a steadfast manner. We have to learn how to do this. We have to learn to be keepers of his word, not just keepers, but doers of his word. I know I find myself always going back to the garden. Whenever we're teaching Torah, the garden sort of is that prerequisite, the foundation of everything else that we learn throughout the Torah. The, the Lord is constantly teaching us in a, in a secular, uh, in a cycle, teaching us what we are to do. And it all goes back to the garden. That first command that God gave to Adam, he created this garden. He created it. He planted the seed. He did all these things. And then he put man in the garden. And then what did he say? He said, you are to work and to keep and tend the garden. God created it, but then we have to put the work in to take care of it, to tend to it. It's the same Hebrew word, shamar, in the Hebrew that is for keeping a garden that we use in the same way of keeping the commandments of the Lord. That's kind of interesting here. The commandments of the Lord, they come from God. He creates them. Just as he created the plants in the garden. Then he makes man to then tend to them. Almost nurture them so that they would then continue on the benefit of them coming from the Lord so that they would continue on. It's the same thing with a garden. If you don't prune a garden, if you don't, if you plant a tree and you don't prune the tree, something, yes, naturally, yes, fruit will be produced. But if you actually take care of it, you prune it, it will grow even more so than you even imagined. The amount of fruit that can come off a tree is astounding. I, you can do this even with those that don't have as green a thumb as some of the other, uh, any other people. Um, you might have a small herb garden. And one of the things that I love is I love basil. And so basil is one of the easiest things there is to grow in an herb garden. And when the basil comes up, it comes up in like a single shoot with the leaves that come off. And, yeah, you can immediately eat it right, right then and there. But if you clip the basil right above where the first two little leaves and first two branches and you prune it, then that stalk of basil will then sprout into two other stalks and you will have double the amount of yield if you take care of and you prune the plant. Everything in gardening is the exact same way. And that is what is necessary for us to keep a garden for it to grow and produce a great yield. We have to do the same thing with Torah, not that we are to cut away parts of the Torah. The Lord says, don't add to or take away from his word. But what it is, is if we actually take care of it in the way that we that we utilize it, we teach it, we learn it, we study it, we do what we need to do with the words and the commands of the Lord, then the fruit that comes out of keeping the word, that's the blessing that comes from obedience, then that blessing can produce a greater yield if we tend to and keep the Torah. That's what God is always commanding us to do. And that is what we are doing here when God is commanding Aaron and his sons the specific instruction 
for the tending of the altar and the keeping of this burnt offering. Last week we began the book of Leviticus and we went through all of the different sacrifices or offerings that were offered on the altar. And I did my level best to clarify that not every offering that was put upon that altar was for the sake of sin. There's a stigma about all these sacrifices and then all they ever were was because somebody sinned and so we had to kill another innocent animal because somebody sinned. Well, no, God created this altar service. He created the tabernacle, asked for us to create the tabernacle so that we can worship him. So that he can dwell in our presence and that we can come into his presence and we can worship him in this way. And all of those offerings all had different meanings and different reasons for those offerings. And it was not all because of sin. This is how we were to worship the Lord. And so this burnt offering was the one that was the first one that was told to us that if you uh, was a voluntary offering for us to, if we wish to bring an offering to the Lord, we could bring it and we could worship the Lord in this way. We could give to the Lord something that belongs to us. That's something that you do just because you love someone, just because you're in a relationship or in covenant with somebody. You give gifts in the process of that to continue to build the relationship and to continue and nurture the relationship. You exchange things between one another. The whole first part of Leviticus, the first couple of chapters, was about us. God calling us to bring an offering to him. And it was about us and the offerings that we were to bring. This Torah portion here <clears throat> begins the laws and the procedures to the priesthood for what to do with these offerings. What the priest was to do when the offering was brought, how they were to kill it, how they were to offer it, what parts of it belonged to the priest, what parts of it were burned. And so, yes, initially in this Torah portion, it's talking about this is direct commandments to Aaron and his sons and to the priests. How to do these things. Now, for many of us, we don't have, of course, we don't have a tabernacle or a temple. Many of us are not by heritage Levitical priests. We wouldn't even, if there was an operating temple, we wouldn't find ourselves operating in the altar service doing these same things. However, that does not mean that these words and these instructions are, uh, of, are null and void for us as the common believer. Because for us, and as teachers of the New Testament, the New Covenant, the testimony of Yeshua, and I've been saying for weeks, having to do this, everything to do with this altar service and this worship of the Lord has to do with our personal relationship with our Heavenly Father in how we are to worship Him. And so there are some very specific instructions to the priesthood to the tending of this altar to the tending of the fire that is on the altar and to these sacrifices. And if we are kind of, you know, stepping outside of ourselves for a little bit and spiritually thinking inside our own hearts, inside our own temples, who we've invited Yeshua of Nazareth to be our high priest, to tend to and to worship the Lord in this tabernacle, in this temple. When these things are commanded, we should spiritually picture them happening inside our own hearts. Understanding that the, that the priesthood that tended to the tabernacle in ancient times, that we ourselves have to be priests operating inside our own temple, inside our own tabernacle, in our own lives. Look, God originally intended for all the firstborn of Israel to be priests. He called us out of Egypt to be a kingdom of priests. 
Now, through sin and through uh, especially the sin of the golden calf, it was the Levites that were made a special portion to the Lord and that they were the group of people who would serve as priests. But I believe God called his all of the nation of Israel to become priests. I think we do so nowadays in our in the modern day. We do so spiritually in our own lives. We become priests in our own service to the Lord. So when we read these words and these instructions about the burning of a fire that is on an altar, we kind of say the same sort of thing in our personal lives when it talks about any sort of effort we put into anything that we do. Ever heard somebody or or heard somebody described as saying that, man, it's just like it seems like their fire has gone out or it seems like they don't just don't have the burning passion or the desire to do something maybe they used to do or they used to love to do. We say that naturally about a lot of people, that it's almost like there's a fire inside of us that sparks inside of us action, that sparks inside of us uh, passion and effort and, and all of these things that you can just see when somebody has something inside themselves more so than maybe the next person. You'll have two people perhaps with the exact same skill set, the exact same education, but this person works their tail off and they have a passion for the things that they do and they love what they do. And then you have this person over here that's lazy and doesn't do anything, even though they have the same skill set. And you can just see, I mean, I say see, but you spiritually can sense this person over here has this burning desire inside of them. And this one, they don't, they, they need a spark. They need something to spark their effort so that they pick pick themselves up and start doing. You know they're capable of doing the same things as this person here. They just need a spark of fire inside of their heart. This is the difference between an altar that has a great fire burning on it continually and then an altar that has not been tended to and that the fire has gone out. If not, it's in the process of going out. This is the commands that were to the Levitical priesthood in the tending of the burnt offering. Let me read here this first um, phrase here in our Torah portion here, beginning at uh, Leviticus 6 at verse uh, 8. If you read from a Jewish Bible, this is one of the slight differences between the Jewish Bible and our usual typical English Bible, is that it's actually chapter 6 verse 1 in the Jewish Bible. They just renumber the number of verses in chapter 5. But in our English Bible, it is Leviticus chapter 6, starting at verse 8, where it says this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth, upon the altar, all night until morning. And the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. The priest shall put on his linen garment and his linen trousers, and he shall put on his body and take up the ashes of the burnt offering, which the fire has consumed on the altar, and he shall put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garments, put on other garments, and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. And the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall never be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in order on it. And he shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. A fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. This is that command for the burnt offering. Yes, there was a type of burnt offering that was voluntary that the children of Israel brought. But God also commanded for these burnt offerings to be put on the altar on the morning and in the evening, each and every day. 
that these offerings are to be before the Lord. This is the offering of the priest. The priest had to do this job, not because anybody brought the lambs in, but this is what God has commanded uh, to be on his altar at all times. There's a couple of things that are very interesting about this passage. Again, we could look at it and say, man, we don't have a priesthood anymore. So what importance is this? But did you hear some of the language there that the Lord was speaking that there is to be a fire on it at all times, at all times? Let there be a burning upon this altar. I go back to my analogy between the two people who have the skill set and the motivation We've got to have a fire inside of us when we do anything that the Lord has led us to do. It's to burn continually in everything that we do. Just like this altar in, in, in ancient times had to have a fire on it. One of the great things I love uh, pointing out, I, he- I heard this recently, but I really hadn't, it, it hadn't sunk in. Who lit, lit the fire that was upon that altar? Here in our passage, we are giving, Moses is receiving this instruction, but they're not doing this work just yet. There's going to be instruction for consecrating the priesthood, and soon in a couple of chapters, we are finally going to begin the priestly ministry, beginning in next week's portion. After we've consecrated Aaron the priests, then these things will begin. Well, if you go to the end of chapter 9 of Leviticus, after all of these things actually began happening, It said this, that when the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and fire came out before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat that was on the altar. Interesting. So when this priesthood actually began for the very first time, fire came out from the glory of the Lord and it lit the fire. Can you imagine that? That it's all like when you light a fire. Let's say I enjoy uh, survival shows on TV, and when somebody goes through the effort to to light a fire for the very first time, they've made the fire, and man, the the joy that they have for the fire, and it's all like, man, I know the amount of work that went into making this fire get started. I'm going to keep it. I'm going to make sure it keeps burning. The fire on the altar belonged to the Lord. He started the fire. We didn't start the fire. There wasn't that first priest that came up and was rubbing sticks together or was sparking flint to get that first fire started to burn up the very first burnt offering. The glory of the Lord made that fire. Can you imagine every time you walked in and that fire is on the altar? Where'd that fire come from? It was a reminder of the presence of the Lord in that place. Yes, the children of Israel had the luxury of a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, and they knew the, the glory of the Lord was there. But then in the actual giving of an offering, if somebody brought their offering into the tabernacle and it was laid upon that fire, the Lord created the fire that burned up the offering. The job now here for the priests is to keep it going, to tend to it. To make sure that that fire never went out. Can you imagine being the guy, the Lord lit this fire, and then you failed to keep that fire going? You let that fire go out? You're never going to have a fire like that ever again. The one that was sparked by, the, by God himself. It seems like that next one that got lit by a flint and steel just kind of pales in comparison if you think about it. That's why it was so important that we tend to it. Same thing is inside all of us, inside our hearts. 
the gifts that God has given to each person. The skill set that they have, that the Lord has bestowed upon us that, you know, I, I love saying, my wife I think was the first person I actually heard it, where, that she said, everybody is an expert at something. Everybody. You, and every time you talk to somebody, you want to find what that is. And you got to find whatever someone's gift is. And usually in motivational uh, speaking, what you're always trying to do is you're trying to reveal somebody's gift. What has the Lord put in their heart, put on them for them to be able to do the things that they do? That's the spark and that's the fire that comes only from the Lord. There's some people that have skills that they don't have any or, or, or a, a desire or a passion for certain things. And they have no earthly explanation as to why they can do something or why they have a heart to do something. All we know is it's somebody's gift and it's somebody put it there. That's the fire of the Lord that's put upon that altar. Now, for us believers, are we going to tend to it? Are we going to keep that fire going? Are we going to make sure that fire burns as hot as it's supposed to be or how as hot as it can burn? That's what we do when we exercise our gifts and we do the skills that the Lord has laid upon our hearts to do. This is an, this is an analogy here that is as good a motivational speaking analogy and teaching that you could possibly have. Put a fire on that altar. The Lord lit the fire in the first place. Now make it burn hotter. Tend to it. I gave you the instruction there about them taking the ashes off of the altar. Why is that so important? Well, you ever lit a campfire and just let it burn and burn and burn and burn? And maybe you're camping for a couple of days and you keep piling the wood on there. What happens to that campfire? First of all, it, it, it can, the ash continues to build up and burns off the logs. And then every log that you throw on there eventually just keeps making it higher and taller and taller. And then it starts to eliminate the whole idea and the reason why you dug a fire pit in the first place. That's to keep the, that's to cause airflow to come to the fire so that it can burn hotter and more efficiently. If you just build a fire on top of flat ground without actually digging a fire pit, very hard to keep that thing lit. The wind will, will, is just blowing constantly through it. Not that it's feeding the fire, but it's, it doesn't, it, it doesn't maintain and you can't tend a fire in that way. So the ash builds up and it suddenly ruins the ability, the, the, the efficiency of the campfire. So what do you do after a while? You clean that ash out. You clean all that out so that then it can be then tended to and so the fire will burn like it's supposed to. Same thing going on here in the temple service. They had to clean out this ash that if you just leave it un, unattended, it doesn't burn like it's supposed to. Now, there's specific instructions. They cleaned out this ash. They put it beside the altar initially when they're tending to the tabernacle. But then when it came time to clean that out, because that was then going to build up too, and you don't want, don't want to have a big pile of ash in the courtyard of, of the Lord. And so then the priest would put on different clothes because they had to then carry the ash outside of the camp to a clean place. Now, the ash that came off the uh, altar, it was holy. It was holy before the Lord. I mean, it's like uh, I'm kind of a nostalgic person. If like, there was some ash that was left over from a burnt offering that I gave before the Lord, I'd have some nostalgia for it. Now, I'm not saying that people would keep the, the, the ash of their burnt offerings, but these things still were holy. There was a reverence to this ash. So they were to take it and put, take it to another place. One thing of note, the priests changed their garments so that when they left the service of the tabernacle, they became like the common folk that walked uh, in the camp of Israel. 
they weren't to, to continue to do that work as a priest. It was the same way that the high priest, Aaron, he didn't wear the holy garments of the high priest outside of the service of the tabernacle. He didn't go home in, in what he wore. All of those things stayed in the service of the tabernacle. So that's one thing of note when they took this ash and they cleaned it out. It was so that fire could be tended to. Now, there's also a couple of other things that are even more spiritual that are below the surface here in reading this scripture. I read it here in in my New King James here, the English, of how the burnt offering was to be put upon the altar. If you go to the Hebrew or you go into the literal instruction of these things, you can find a couple more things that are very interesting. One is this, the burnt offering, which was called the Ola offering, that it was lifted up before the Lord in the same way fire and smoke is lifted up when it burns, is that it's given a masculine gender uh, designation. That it's all like when it, it says literally the burnt offering and it's like, and so it shall be upon the altar. It's actually literally like he shall be put upon the altar. That's kind of interesting. The other thing, too, is that phrase that I read before where it said the burnt offering shall be on the shall be on the hearth upon the altar all night until morning. That's kind of that's kind of a way to describe what's being said there. But that's not literally what it says in the Hebrew. What it literally says this. It is the burnt offering because of the burning upon the altar all night until morning. Man, that's kind of it's kind of weird to read it that way. It's called the burnt offering because it is burning. That's sort of strange. It seems kind of redundant, but there's no redundancy in Scripture. What it really says there, especially at that word, Hebrew word, burning, where in some translations translate it to the hearth, the offering is on the hearth, but literally in the Hebrew that means burning. The Hebrew word there is mokdah, mokdah, which just means burning. Here in the passage... In the Hebrew, faithfully copied by the scribes and, and sages for many years, there is one of the jots and tittles of Moses. That first letter, Mem, of Mokdah, is made small here in this burning. Why is that, Why is that significant? Well, one thing that's interesting about the Hebrew, word, or the Hebrew letter Mem is often means water, and it means like it sometimes relates to the spirit. But the thing that actually, the, sort of the more negative uh, definition of what that means is the chaos that's caused by, say, the waters of waves in an ocean. And so water and, and Mem can sometimes mean chaos. And I love the, the looking at this, this whole keeping of the burnt offering. That if you stay faithful and steadfast to keeping this commandment, your chaos, the chaos that you have in your life, will be made small. Perhaps it doesn't remove all the chaos in our lives. Nobody gets a a free ride in that way. But if we stay steadfast in our worship of the Lord, our chaos will be made small. That's a fascinating little teaching there that, again, we're, we're all talking about this continual worship of the Lord. Now, we all, I also relate this, of course, to the Messiah himself. I do believe the Messiah himself, his sacrifice and the things that he did, his testimony, all connect to different offerings that were made in this altar service. When he ascended to heaven, he was lifted up, up to heaven. 
in the same way that this burnt offering was called the Ola offering, which was lifted up before the Lord. And I told you that offering was given a masculine gender designation. That it's like we can picture this, that when a burnt offering is lifted up before the Lord, that there is a parallel to the Messiah being lifted up before the Lord as well. And the offering that he was offered to and he was the acceptable sacrifice to the Lord for our sin. And this is just one of the ways that the ascension of the Lord connects to this burnt offering. Very important that we understand this keeping of this altar. That there's more to it, more between the way more between the lines here of than just this instruction for the priesthood. I then also want to point us to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16, talking about the coming of the Lord and the Messiah himself said that he comes like a thief in the night. In fact, I want to make sure that I quote this this verse uh, specifically. Revelation 16 at verse 15. The Messiah spoke of his coming in this way, where he says, Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garment, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Very interesting wording here, something about keeping his garment. Somebody might think, if they didn't have an understanding of the Torah service, they might think, oh, the thief comes and he takes the garments of the person, or that's what he stole, but then why would he have to walk naked and anyone see his shame? Well, actually, this connects directly back to this Torah portion and back to this instruction about tending to the fire on the altar. The fire was to never go out. So that means when somebody, whenever the temple shut down, the the service shut down, but then we needed to start it up in the morning, somebody had to keep watch and to make sure that that fire never went out. The priests, there would be a priest that would have to watch and tend to the fire. They would have to stand and watch over to keep it to make sure it kept burning, stoking the flame, putting more wood on it if necessary, clearing out the ash if necessary, and making sure that fire never went out. Now, anybody who's ever stood watch knows that's not just that's not the easiest job. Very easy to fall asleep on the job. Very easy to, to, to not keep or tend to this. We all get tired and busy and you're just doing the same thing for several hours. There's nobody else awake to talk to. And so very easy to fall asleep on watch. What would happen in ancient times, and there's many documents of, of the, this was a procedure uh, that they did in the tabernacle, is that if... The high priest would sometimes come to check on the altar. Maybe he'd come early in the morning to make sure everything was good before he came to do the work. Or another priest would. We don't know exactly who. But they'd come and they'd see. And maybe they'd come. The first thing they'd do, they'd walk in. First thing they'd see, uh, the altar, the fire. supposed to still be burning. Maybe they'd find it and it's kind of dwindling. Maybe it's not keeping its fire. Maybe it's down to just some coals. Now, if it's ever burned down to just some coals, you can stoke it back up and you can get the fire going. But the bigger question is this. Where's the priest that was meant to be watching and tending to the fire? The procedure that would happen is this. The, the, the high priest would stoke the fire back up, make sure it got going. But then he would retrieve some of the coals, probably with a sensor. And then he'd go looking for the sleeping priest, the one who was supposed to be doing his job. And the procedure that would happen is that they would then take the coals of the altar and they would light the bottom of the garments of the sleeping priest on fire. These linen garments burned really good. They were not 
inspected fire retardant, retardant garments. Uh, they lit on fire very well. Uh, these linen garments of the priesthood, if they were old and worn out, they were then used as wicks for the menorah to fuel the menorah. So when this fire would, would, would light the garment of this priest, first of all, he would probably wake up at some point in time and he'd wake up to find his garments on fire. Quite a rude awakening if there ever was one. And they would end up getting burned or hurt, and they, but they would lose their garments. They'd lose part of their garments, and then they, they would be shameful, and, and, and they would know they messed up because they had a job to do. They had a job to tend that fire, but it was not being tended to because he was sleeping on the job. And then that person would have to go home in shame. At the end of the night shift, he would have to go home, and he wouldn't have any garments that he could walk home with. Remember, he couldn't even he couldn't tra- tra- change into some other priestly garments and then go home. Those garments weren't meant to leave the tabernacle. So he would have to go home in shame. This is the a great word picture for somebody who was found without a fire on their altar. Somebody who had the amazing job and task of doing something and working for the Lord. But he wasn't tending to it. Then the high priest would have to come, came as a thief in the night, and had then suddenly a rude awakening was realized by the person who wasn't aware of his surroundings. This is a great analogy and a great warning for us believers in the Lord and the Messiah. I'm reminded also of the parable of the ten virgins, how there were wise ones that were anticipating the return of the master and other ones that were not. The priesthood who falls asleep, the priest who falls asleep on the job is not aware of his surroundings. He's not aware that somebody would come in and check on him to make sure he's doing his job. And then when the high priest actually came, it was not as pleasant of an experience as it could have been. Imagine if the priest is doing his job. Imagine if the priest is standing up, he's singing praises to the Lord, he's doing prayers, and he's tending to the fire. And the high priest walks in at 3 a.m. in the morning, and he comes in to check on the and There it is, burning, strong. And then the, the priest there, is, is he's tending to the, to the fire, and he's like, hey, good morning. Oh, good morning. The fire's doing good. Yeah, fire's looking really good. How sweet of a moment is that? To be at 3 a.m. in the morning, on your watch, bored and tired, but at least you're up and you're doing your job. And then you get to fellowship with the high priest who came to visit you. The high priest isn't going to, you sit there and you might talk and get into a conversation talking about the Lord until the rising of the sun that morning. Man, that is a stark contrast between the interactions between a priest and the high priest. Uh, in one thing, if the priest is doing his job, that interaction is sweet. If the priest wasn't doing his job, that interaction is the worst thing that could possibly happen to the priest. <laughs> this is the warning for us. When the Lord comes calling, when he calls us, when he comes walking in the cool of the day or coming as three people to our doorstep, what is he going to find when he arrives? True religion is God-seeking man, not man-seeking God. When God shows up, what will the interaction be like? Are we doing the job we're supposed to be doing? The Lord commands that the Lord has given us and called us to do? Or are we falling asleep at the job? Interaction is going to depend on the work of the priest. We should do the same in our personal walks, in our personal lives. Tending to a fire that is meant to be on our altar. 
This is the, the, this is the, the prophecy to the end of the days. When, when Yeshua comes on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, when he comes to this earth, what will he find? There might be those that had called to the task of working for the Lord, but they're asleep on the job, and that awakening will not be pleasant for them. Others that know that are expecting the return of the Lord and are continuing to labor day in and day out, occupying until he returns. When the Lord comes, what a sweet day that will be. There it is right there. Choose. Which kind of priest do you want to be? One that keeps the fire going or one that lets the fire go out? As I said, we ourselves are priests in our own tabernacle, in our own temples, in the service of the Lord. We need to, may I submit that we should be the good priest that continues to do the work of the Lord. Now, with that, obviously I've spent some time now talking about that very first passage. It's profound how this burnt offering was was meant to be given and what it should mean to us spiritually. There's a couple other uh, parts of our Torah portion here I do want to point out that I think are fascinating and, and we want to continue to learn from what the Scripture has to say. It also continues on with the instruction of the grain offering, and this is what the priests were to do. Exactly when they received a grain offering, what they were to do, put some of it on the altar, some of it was then for them to take. Also, the command to them to be steadfast that there was to be a grain offering upon the Lord, uh, upon the altar for the Lord every single day. There was a daily grain offering. That instruction comes beginning in Leviticus uh, 6 at verse 19, where it says, This is the offering Aaron and his sons, which they shall offer to the Lord, beginning on the day when he is anointed, one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a daily grain offering, half in the morning and half of it at night. It shall be made in a pan with oil when it is mixed. It shall be brought in, and the baking, the baked pieces of the grain offering um, you shall offer as a sweet aroma before the Lord. And the priest from among his sons who is anointed in this place shall offer it as a statute forever to the Lord. It shall wholly be burned for every grain offering for the priest shall be wholly burned. It shall not be eaten. This is to distinguish the grain offering that was brought by one of the members of the, of the congregation of Israel and then the one that is to be daily offered before the Lord. The one that goes to the Lord is burned up completely similar to the burnt offering. This is to distinguish what is for the Lord. Now, one of the things that is also said about this grain offering and just a couple of verses before is that whoever is taking this burnt offering, it is to be clean. It is to be rendered as holy. And it says everyone who touches the grain offering in the process of the giving it is to be holy, must be holy. I actually want to take us to another passage of scripture that connects somewhat to this. If you go to the uh, minor prophet Haggai, there's only two uh, chapters in the book of Haggai. And if you go to uh, chapter uh, 2, starting at verse 11, it says this. The Lord of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, and he says this. Thus says the, to the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priests concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, with the edge, he touches bread or stew or wine or oil or any food. Will it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. And Haggai said, if one who is unclean because of dead bodies 
touch any of these, will it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, yes, it shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is this people and so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. This was a warning back in the time of Haggai to the people to become holy because if they're going to start back up the altar in the service of the Lord, they have to be clean. If anything is if there's anything that is unclean about you, you touch it, everything becomes null and void. It is rendered null and void. It then means nothing. It becomes unclean. That is something we have to be cautious of when we are doing the service of our own tabernacle as well. Any little thing that is unclean will make the entire offering of null and void. Just because we once gave an offering to the Lord, just because once an offering was given and we had the honor and the blessing of carrying out the, the, the work of the Lord in the service, didn't carry any weight into the future. It's the same thing in that warning that the prophet was giving. If you once were the one, if yesterday you gave the grain offering and you were holy and you were clean yesterday and you carried the bread or the meat in the folds of your garment and anything you touch and do is now clean, right? No, of course not. That offering is to the Lord. That the, the offering is what is holy. We have to be clean before we can work with it. But if anything is unclean that is present, the whole thing is ruined. The whole thing. It's, this is, uh, again, we're learning these instructions through the wording here. We're not just talking about instructions for a priesthood. We're talking about warnings to us who will serve the Lord in any capacity that we might do it. Be careful of anything that is unclean, that nobody who is unclean can make contact with this giving of the grain offering. Now, it continues on the instruction. Now, the law of the sin offering, verse 24, the Lord speaks to Moses, saying, speak to Aaron and his son, saying, this is the law of the sin offering. Wow. The tone of the Lord has changed again. The previous offerings were ones that were to be given to the Lord. That he had commanded to, to, to be offered to him. And he's commanding them. Be steadfast to do these things. Now the tone shifts again. Speak to Aaron and his sons. This is the law of the sin offering. This to me encourages me in the way that God does not favor the sin offerings. He doesn't give honor and reverence to the sin and to the trespass offerings. It was never a sweet aroma before the Lord. He didn't desire these things. If there ever was a need for a sin offering, there was obviously disappointment that was to be had. God wished they didn't want his, all the offerings on his altar to be sin offerings and trespass offerings day and night constantly because his people just can't seem to do what's right. That's not what he wants. So when he's saying this, he's like, look, speak to Aaron and his sons. This is what we'll do for this if we have to do this. But I'm not commanding you to bring sin offerings each and every day. God forbid there be any sin offerings on that altar. The command is not coming forth to bring this type of offering. But if we have to, we're going to speak and we're going to teach it to the people. One of the things that's also interesting here where it says this. The sin offerings were brought in the same place where the burnt offering was killed. This is something that speaks to me that God is protecting his people from creating division amongst ourselves. And let me explain it this way. 
If you were ever in a school and you knew that one classroom was for detention and one classroom, this is where all the, the good kids go for after, special good after school programs. And there was a line running out both of those doors. And you could see that line and you'd be like, <laughs> look at all those kids that have to go to detention. Good thing we're in this line so that we had get to go, that we're the good kids. There's the bad kids, there's the good kids. This would have been the case if there was a separate place and a separate line for the sin offerings versus the burnt offerings or the peace offerings. There'd be two lines, and you would know which are the sinners and which are the ones that are clean and ready to worship the Lord. The Lord didn't allow for that division to be had. The same sacrifice was brought to the same place. So that when one could come before the Lord, they could do their business with the Lord without the presence of ridicule and shame that might come from the other people and the other people of Israel, that when they were bringing a certain offering before the Lord, it was nobody else's business what kind of offering they were bringing. They would bring it to the priest. He would tell the priest what kind of offering he was being brought, and then the service would be able to continue. So I love the fact that this all happened in the exact same place, to not bring any attention to one's sin. Now, in the case of the trespass offering, this was another thing that was similar. And the instructions here in the um, scripture specifically say what parts of each offering was to be given to the priest. What was the parts that the priest were going to receive? Again, these instructions were to the priest. The priest would have to do this work. What part is holy and goes to the Lord? What part is their portion as well? I said last week, when it came to the burnt offering, the skin or the hide that came off of the animal was given to the priest. In the law of the grain offering, some of the grain was cooked and baked so that the priest could eat as well. And in the case of the sin offering and the trespass offering, there's specific instruction as to what parts were available to the priests to use. If we continue on and talk about the peace offerings... It's interesting that the instruction is now being left for the peace offerings. I said last week, the peace offerings were the ones that were the really good ones. The ones that the Lord would love to receive. That's the one that the people bringing the, the offering would get to partake of themselves. And these were the rejoicing, these were the most joyous kind of offering that could be given. In verse 11 of chapter, or 7, it begins and says, This is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which you shall offer to the Lord. If he is offering it for thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving unleavened cakes mixed with oil and wafers and that the, the reason for the offering was for thanksgiving the sages say that anything that is listed in psalm 107 was typically the reason why somebody would bring a thanksgiving offering let me go ahead and go to the psalm and read it's always encouraging to read some of the psalms I actually believe that there are psalms that parallel uh, every single Torah portion. And, and one of these days, uh, we'll have a nice good list of, of various psalms that can be read with each Torah portion. But if we go to Psalm 107, that uh, the headline here in my New King James says, Thanksgiving to the Lord for his great works of deliverance. Let me read some of the first uh, verses here. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted in them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distress. And he led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. 
Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. This it continues on with other things and thanksgiving that is given before the Lord. And the sages say that if anyone was ever on a great journey and they were delivered from distress, maybe they were hungry at one point, thirsty at one point, and deliverance came from the Lord. That would be the reason why somebody would then go and there's like, man, I'm going to go give a thanksgiving offering to the Lord for him delivering me through my struggles and my trials. And so if anybody was ever delivered from the enemy, safe travel over the sea or safe travel through a desert, this would be the grounds and the means in which somebody would give a thanksgiving offering. If you read here and continue on talking about the thanksgiving offering, how it was to be given, it says that there was no, that it was never to be eaten any leftover of it until morning. Verse 15 says this, the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day that is offered. He shall not leave any of it until morning. Very interesting. It continues on and it gives us an example of a different offering as well. But, verse 16, but if the sacrifice of this offering is a vow or a voluntary offering, it shall be eaten the same day that he offers his sacrifice. But on the next day, the remainder may also be eaten. The remainder of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day must be burned with fire. If any of the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering is eaten at all on the third day, then it shall not be accepted, nor shall it be imputed to him. It shall be an abomination to him who offers it, and the person who eats it shall bear guilt. Okay, so there's a warning here. These peace offerings are great and wonderful, but we can ruin it if we do something more with it than what is prescribed. I actually liken it unto this way. If you're in the case of the Thanksgiving offering, let's say you had a friend or a neighbor, and you were driving along the road, and suddenly you saw your neighbor. They were they were broke down on the side of the road, or maybe they needed help changing a tire or something. So you stopped and you helped them out. You helped them out. You got them back on their way. You you, you fixed their helped them to fix their car, helped them to change their tire. So then what happens? The next day, a couple of days later, whatever it might be, they want to thank you for doing that work. So they come and they bring you a gift. Maybe they give you a nice bottle of wine. That's what I would like to receive. <laughs> uh, or they, you know, share a meal or some sort of gift to thank you, just a card or whatever it might be to thank you for helping them out. And you say, hey, no problem. You're welcome. That gift is greatly appreciated. You love that, that, that it, was, it was given. They recognized the effort. And you were just doing what was in your heart to help them out. What happens if the very next time you see them, they're like, oh, they bring another gift to you. Or they just fall all over themselves again to just say, man, you know what? I just can't thank you enough again because you helped me out. You got me on the road. And it's all like, look, dude, oh, you're welcome. Of course, you thanked me before the bottle of wine the first time was good enough. It's like, no need to fall all over yourself and do that. If somebody were to do that in your life, you're kind of like, man, what's. What's going on with this person? What's the? It's almost like you tend to think and you're like, man, I wonder if he has some other insecurity going on in his life that is getting in the way of him just being thankful to me for what I did. You start to worry about that other person and, and really, I mean, it's like, what's the motivation here? What's going on? What else is, is going on with this? In the case of Thanksgiving, you, you can overdo it. 
You can be overly thankful and just fall in and know, and people don't. It gets annoying after a while. You don't want that person to keep falling all over themselves, thanking you. I, yeah, you, it almost makes you feel bad about doing what you good, did good for them. Sometimes, if it go, goes far enough, that's the case of the Thanksgiving offering. Give it to the Lord. Give thanks. Get to partake of the food. But don't make this linger on. Don't carry this on. Don't, don't try to save it and just be like, oh, you know, it's, I, I want to eat it again. And I just, oh, Lord, you know, I'm just, I'm thankful again for, for what you did. And the Lord's like, I, I, I got it. Okay, I, I, I got you. Same thing, again, this is almost the personification of the Lord himself in the regard for the offerings. We can put ourselves in a similar situation and think the exact same way that the Lord might think about this. Now, going back to that other offering there. Whereas if a voluntary offering or an offering is brought because a peace offering is brought because you're making a vow, that could be eaten on the second day. Why might that be? Well, in the case of a vow, a vow is made before the Lord and saying, I'm going to do this. This is going to be a vow is made. It has the, it changes creation, the power of a vow before the Lord. And if somebody makes a vow, well, something they're going to have to do is when they wake up the next day, they're going to have to remember the vow that they made. And continue to do that. Vows sometimes take the act of someone's will to continue to to work and to do the vow that they have committed to do. And they have to remember to do it. I almost think, in the case of a vow, it might be good for that person to eat of that offering even on the second day as well. It's It's to remind you that it's all like, I did make a vow... Even though I've slept since then, I should probably remember to keep that vow. It's to continue going. Same thing with a voluntary peace offering as well. I worship the Lord then. I should remember that I did worship the Lord and give to the Lord, and I should continue to do these things. It almost, it's a reminder for us to continue the reason why we brought the offering in the first place. Then on the third day, if it's you still had some remaining, then that's to be burned with fire, not to be eaten. In the case of somebody making a vow, that would actually be a spiritual uh, event, an action to take. It's like, well, first day I gave this offering, second day I ate it again to remember that I need to keep doing it, and the third day I'm going to burn the rest up with fire. It's now on my shoulders to continue the work of the vow. If I fail to keep my vow that I've made before the Lord then that fire on the third day might be a warning to me of something I should watch out for. That is the reason why. So, so I, I can see, I can see the, the natural reasons for the types of offerings to be given to the Lord and what the various procedures are supposed to mean to us spiritually. If you're giving thanks, you give it once, you say thank you and you move on. If you make a vow, you give the offering, but then you've got to remember to continue to fulfill the word that you have committed to. These teachings and these offerings are meant for us to learn to walk uprightly before the Lord. They're to help us to come back into good stead with the Lord. These offerings have more to do with our spiritual lives than anything that has ever been taught about these things before. If we just would start to read these words and really take them to heart, we understand that this is exactly how we are to work, how our relationship is to be with us and the Lord. And I can give you examples and parallels to how it parallels relationships 
with our fellow brethren as well. All of these things are very important to us. It's also reiterated again uh, in our portion here, beginning of verse 22 of chapter 7, that we are not to eat of the fat or the blood of the animals. That the fat was to be used as a fuel for burning on the altar. It was one of the things that was important to the tending of the service. You might have heard before, as I was reading before, the burnt offering was offered and then the fat of peace offerings was also put on the altar as a fuel so that it continued to burn. That fat belonged to the Lord. Now, one, practically, yes, that was the fuel that helped to keep it going. Two, that's also another portion that belongs to God belongs to him. We don't want to uh, encroach or be or be an affront to what belongs to God. That's what got us in deep water in the first place when it came to the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That tree belonged to God. That was his tree. He named the tree. The fruit on the tree belonged to God. We're not supposed to offend that. And it's the same thing with the portion of fat and also the portion of blood. Several times in Scripture it says the life is in the blood, the, the nefesh, the soul is in the blood. And when things we can speculate all about how what makes us who we are and what is our soul and what is our spirit and what is our body and how do they all work with one another. I believe the soul is the part of God that he puts inside of us. It's the life that comes from God. It's his portion, belongs to him, doesn't belong to anybody else. If an animal is going to die, the blood goes back to the ground where it came and it belongs to God. It's not meant to be consumed for any other reason. And this is one of those things that can cut off somebody from the people is if they've consumed the blood. That part belongs to God, and we're not going to offend that in any way, shape, or form. That's what the priesthood, that's their entire job, was so that there was no offense, that there weren't any fences or boundaries or barriers being crossed one way or the other. So that whatever was holy remained holy and whatever was pure, was pure remained pure. And anything that is unclean or unholy is separated from that which is holy. This is one of those things to separate. The blood was holy and it wasn't to be, be, be imparted upon to anybody for any other purpose or reason. One other interesting thing that pops up here, though, is it does say if the fat of an animal that dies naturally was torn by beasts, it's not to be eaten in any by no means should be eaten or offered to the Lord. But it could be used for other things, fuel for, for other things. And so God himself, even in the course of this instruction, shows that he's not wasteful in the process of, of any of these things and parts of his creation. Things can be used for other purposes, even if it's just not meant to be eaten. Now, um, my time is running short, and so the rest of our portion continues on through chapter 8. And what's very fascinating about chapter 8 is this, is it is almost verbatim what has been instructed to us before that was given to us in Exodus chapter 29. Again, we need to remember to not separate the books of Leviticus and Exodus so much so that they really are completely different. No, it's the same narrative that continues on. In the same way in Exodus, where we received the instruction for building the tabernacle, then later on in Exodus, they actually built it. In Exodus 29, we received the instruction for Aaron and his sons to be consecrated, to be priests, to serve the Lord. Here in Leviticus chapter 8 is them actually doing it. Actually, where Moses now is putting the garments on Aaron and there he's anointing them to the task and he's finishing the work. He's putting he's, he's girding his sons with sashes and with clothing and they are to be at the doorway of the tent of meeting and they're to be consecrated for seven days, seven days. They are set apart 
to the Lord to do this work and to do this service of the Lord. And again, it's a verbatim. We're almost word for word in from Exodus chapter 29. The last thing I want to point out is this. One of the last phrases that is made to Moses speaking about Aaron and his sons. It says in verse 33, it says, for seven days he shall consecrate you. There in the Hebrew, it's very interesting. It says, imelo et yadachem, which is basically I will consecrate you. I will, I will fill you in your hands and I will consecrate you. That you might have heard, as I said that, that Hebrew word et, this is one of those great places where the Aleph Tav appears. And that in the course of this consecration, in the service of the tabernacle to Aaron and his priests, Aleph Tav, Yeshua, is being put in their hands so that the Messiah himself might be the guide, would guide their hands in the service of the tabernacle. Very interesting phrase there. It's in here in Leviticus chapter 8, but not in Exodus chapter 29. So always one of, one of the great things to do is to try to read both passages uh, side by side and see what exactly is different. And so the, that Hebrew phrase is only here in Leviticus chapter 8. Again, we're seeing the Messiah show up in this service of the altar. That in the high priest is, is the role that Yeshua plays inside the temple and the tabernacle, inside our own hearts. This whole idea of being set apart for seven days, this is going to come into play later as we get into the Torah portions of Tezria and Zorah, talking about the cleansing of the leper. And there's an amazing parallel between the consecration of the priesthood and also the cleansing of the leper. I hope to bring that out in a couple of weeks. But as this story continues on, this is going to lead directly into next week's Torah portion, where we will talk about after they have been consecrated and when the actual ministry of that temple is then ready to begin, physically ready to begin. Before God has commanded it, now we're actually going to see it come into play. And there's so many other things to learn as we continue this. Once again, I would submit to us that we would commit ourselves, consecrate ourselves to the service of the Lord. Many of us are going through our lives trying to keep the fire burning on our altar and continuing to serve the Lord. I would encourage us to tend to the word of the Lord, tend to the fire and the passion and the spark that he has already put in there so that it might become a fire that would well up inside of you. And look, if you've got to set yourself apart for days on end, if you need to go into your prayer life and pray for several days, take a sabbatical, take seven days, rededicate your life to the service of the Lord. Get that fire stoked back up so that you can feel the presence of the Lord dwelling inside of us. For those that are new to our faith, I pray that these things would be revealed to us and that we would have hearts of our brethren stirred and turned, making teshuvah and returning to the Lord. For those of us that have been believers for maybe a long time that might have that spark, I pray that the Lord would just reveal to you how to stoke that fire back up inside your lives, to return the passion and the desire that you have to serve the Lord and the Most High God who created you. So with that said, I hope that we'd be encouraged on this Sabbath day and can, would carry us over to next week. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you for your teaching and instruction. Father, I thank you, Lord, for each person here. I pray that we were blessed, Lord, by reading your word and your instruction, Father. I pray that you would just continue to reveal things in our hearts and in our minds. Give us spiritual eyes to see, spiritual ears to hear, Lord, and to know what you are trying to speak to us. Father, I may, may we look at ourselves as priests to you.
tending to the altar and taking care of the tabernacle, the place where you dwell inside of our hearts, inside of our own lives. Anoint us to the task, Lord. Set us apart. Keep us holy and let nothing unclean be in our lives, Lord, so that we can do this service to you. We love you, bless you, and thank you on the Sabbath day. We worship you. We pray that your will be done in all things and your kingdom come very soon. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. And now the blessing after the Torah. Baruch atarunai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher natan lanu Torah temet Fachai alam natabatochenu Baruch atarunai nonten haTorah haAmen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, Giver of the Torah. Amen. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. When the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around saying, Shabbat Shalom. Everybody sing. Shalom, shalom, God has put a smile upon your face. 